if you haven't picked up on it this morning, we kind of have a theme, uh, kind of a lost and found theme. Those words of the songs, those last few songs, were definitely about being lost and being found. And I just love those words. And, uh, you know, if, any of, if we're just honest with ourselves, we're lost on a regular basis. And it's a great theme to uh, speak about because it's a theme that's all through Scripture. It's one of Jesus' uh, most common themes that he spoke about. And it's also something that we have a lot of familiarity with. You know, we all lose things. We, we know what it feels like to, to lose something and then the joy to find it. Uh, and I, I know as I get older, I'm having more and more experience with losing things. Anybody else feel that same way? <laughs> in the older folks in the, in the congregation that I know, what they say, it's probably not going to get any better. <laughs> uh, it's just a frustrating thing. You know, how many times I come out of Walmart and I can't find my truck in the parking lot? You know, that is, it's really embarrassing. So you don't want to be seen. You know, you don't want anybody to know that you've lost something. Uh, but anyway, we all have lots of experience with losing things. You know, so much so that you can go in almost any business in town and they will have a lost and found area. Have you noticed that? You know, because we lose things. Did you know that even here at our church, we have a lost and found area? Interesting. And I went through it the other day, and it's obvious that a lot of you don't know we have a lost and found area. <laughs> um, let me show you a few of the things that I found. There's some real treasures here, as you can imagine. Uh, I found these really cool sunglasses. I can't believe somebody hadn't claimed these. They say uh, Speed Racer on them. So if those look familiar, they'll be in the... Lost and found, which makes me think, you know, as I was thinking about this, why is it called a lost and found? Because if these things are there, they're just lost. I mean, so I'm going to call it the lost department, okay? Uh, for all of you ladies, there's a lovely Hannah Montana bag. I guess it wouldn't just have to be ladies. There are some guys that might like this too. Anyway, <laughs> lovely pink. Danny Stevenson, you might come look at this. <laughs> Uh, oh, and look at this really cool uh, clip-on tie. Isn't that nice? goes with anything. And I think I've seen somebody with this on, and I can't remember it. Is it Danny Dozier? Is this yours? <laughs> Is it? Okay, it'll be in the church lost and found. Oh, and I also found this. This is interesting. Not many things actually have your name on them in the lost and found. There's this great Bible, uh, and it says in the front, Chelsea Dean. I see people know Chelsea Dean, huh? Well, you might ask her if she's missed this. I don't know how long it's been there. You know, it'll be in the church lost department until she finds it. And you know, it's real easy to get critical of people who lose things. Like as I was going through that, uh, actually Lou and I were going through this, uh, the lost department, and I thought, I can't believe these people that lose things. And then Lou pulls out this jacket, and she says, I don't know who this belongs to, and it's mine. <laughs> and she said, it's been here a long time, left over from a church ski trip, and I've not been on the church ski trip in a couple of years. <clears throat> so I say all that to, to make a couple of points. You know, first of all, you might need to go check out the church lost department. 
Because you might find something. And the other point is, just like Scripture says, until somebody goes and finds something that's lost, it stays lost. (laughs) Okay? So, like I said, Scripture talks a lot about lost and found. Um, It is one of the main themes in Scripture. We're going to look at Luke chapter 15 this morning. Uh, So you can be turning there. There's actually three parables in Luke 15. And probably as you're turning there, there's a few of you thinking, oh boy, another sermon on the prodigal son. How many of these have I heard? (laughs) And I understand that. But this morning we're going to approach it a little bit different uh, because Jesus tells these three parables, which I'm actually going to call four stories because they're really four kind of separate stories. The last parable has two stories, but there's a, a different message there. So we're going to look at these at these four stories this morning. So if you're thinking, oh, I've heard all this before. I don't need to hear it again, you know. Well, you might be the one that needs to listen. Because when we focus on the message of just the prodigal son, and that's a fabulous message, you know, and we all know that, we all know that story. Even people who don't go to church know that story. You know, it's a great story about a, about a young son who, who runs from the father and squanders all of his stuff, and the father receives him back with open arms, and that is a fabulous story. But when our focus is on that story, we miss what Jesus is saying in this whole chapter because he has some very specific things. And we're going we're gonna to move through this chapter rather quickly, but it is very important. You know, the context of your passage is terribly important. So he tells these three stories without a break in between them, okay? Just one to the next to the next. And the other thing that's very important when you look at Scripture is to uh, determine who the audience is. So we've got to find out exactly who it is that Jesus is talking to. And he tells us that there in, in, in the first verse. Look at verse uh, Luke 15, 1. He says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. So we've got the tax collectors and the sinners. We kind of have some kind of idea who the tax collectors are, you know, uh, although we don't really understand the, the Jews' hatred of the tax collectors. We just... It's a whole other story, but it's, it's, it's their, um, the lowest of the low. They were there listening to him. Uh, the sinners, now that's an interesting category of people. Wouldn't you like to be put in that category, the sinners? Uh, well, the scriptures are referred to that, they refer to them a lot. And uh, it's people like prostitutes and uh, the poor and the crippled and the blind, the lame. It's those people that are they're real down and out of society. And that's who the, the, the Jews actually tagged the name sinners. Because to the Jewish mindset, these people were obviously sinners because God had brought these calamities on their life. You know, because in, in, in the Jewish way of thinking in those days, God blessed you with wealth and he blessed you with health. So if you, were, if you had infirmities, if you were terribly poor, then, you know, you obviously, there was sin in your life. And they would consider you a sinner. Uh, look at the next group. There's other people there also. Look at verse 2. He says, Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So you've got the tax collectors and the sinners, and then you've got the Pharisees and the scribes. 
And we all know the Pharisees and scribes' attitude toward the tax collectors and the sinners. They wanted nothing to do with them. They considered them unclean, despicable. They were the lowest of the low. They were the worst of the worst. And if they associated with them, then they themselves would become unclean. So they were shunned. They just avoided them at all costs. So we've got these, these four groups of people, and I think the way the Scripture reads, if you look at verse 3, he says, so he told them this parable. I think he tells this parable really to the Pharisees and the scribes. Although the, obviously the tax collectors and the, and the uh, sinners are there also, I really think he's looking at the Pharisees and the scribes when he's telling these things. And I also think it's important to, uh, t- to look at what they're grumbling about. It says he receives sinners and eats with them. Uh, he doesn't just receive them. What they're grumbling about is the way he received them. Uh, some versions, uh, some translations say he welcomed them. What it's saying is he welcomed them with open arms. He loved these people. And that's exactly the opposite attitude that the Pharisees and the scribes had. They despised them. So keep that in mind. It's very important as we work through these three parables, these, these four stories. I'm going to read the first one to us. It's really short. Now, I want you to pay attention to like a, uh, like a theme, okay, a theme of this parable. And what we'll see is there's a, there's a common theme, a common pattern. So listen for a theme or a pattern in these few verses. Uh, four through six, he says, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. So you see that theme there? How many times does he say, Lost and found and rejoice? And remember who he's saying this. He's looking at the Pharisees and the scribes. Because when he's talking about lost sheep, He's really referring to these sinners and these tax collectors. But, but I think he, there's a real obvious theme here. We'll see it through the whole passage. And then Jesus uh, explains this parable in, uh, in verse 7. He says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In the same way. Those are key words there. You know, a parable is really an earthly story that, that is told that it has a heavenly meaning, okay? And Jesus makes that connection here when he says what's going on in heaven, okay? Uh, when one sinner repents, there'll be more joy in heaven when one sinner repents. So we have this theme of lost and found in your joyce. Then Jesus brings in this critical idea of repentance. So think about how the Pharisees and the scribes are hearing this, these Pharisees and scribes who, who avoid the tax collectors and the sinners like the plague, ridicule them, avoid them, and Jesus says that God in heaven is rejoicing when they repent. I, I personally think that's quite an accusation for Jesus to make toward the Pharisees and the scribes that they are rejecting God in heaven is rejoicing. Look at the, uh, at the uh, second story, the second parable. It's in uh, 8 through 10. 
See if you see that same pattern as I read that. It's 8 through 9, actually. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Do you see that same idea? Lost, found, rejoice. Same exact, it's almost the same kind of story. And you know, what it, so what it says to me is even though with the sheep there was one out of a hundred that was lost, it showed the great value and the great worth to that shepherd of that one who was lost, that he would leave the 99 and go after the one. And the same thing about the woman in this story. She had ten and lost one, but that one to her was valuable. There was great worth, and she searched diligently until she found it. And look at how he explains this parable in verse 10. In the same way I tell you, there's that, there's that phrase again, in the same way I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Same thing. He makes that connection from the earthly story he's telling to what's going on in heaven. And even though he says the angels of God, you know, he's just basically saying that there is celebration in heaven. God is celebrating. The angels are celebrating. There is a big party in heaven over one sinner who repents. And all the while, he's looking at them, and they know how they feel toward the sinners. I'm telling you, I think it's quite an accusation, but he doesn't stop there. I mean, like I said, he tells these three stories in a row. So we're going to get to the, to the third story, uh, the story of the prodigal son, it is so familiar. It is so famous. Uh, we're going to move through it really quickly. Okay, but look for those same things. Look for lost, found, rejoice. And look for a, a repentance here. Okay, because Jesus tied that in, so it's obviously critical. Uh, 11 through 24 says, And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe fa uh, famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. You see that theme. How clear is that, is that theme in that story of lost and found and rejoicing? 
we, we love the picture of the Father there. I, I just love it. It's such a great picture. But I want to talk about repentance for a second. Do we see repentance there? And, and you've got to keep in mind that a parable is just, it's just a story. It's an illustration. It's not going to cover every point. And we'll talk about repentance a little bit later on. But I want to point out some things here I think that we do see from Scripture. And it also brings to, brings to my mind why Jesus mentioned it in the parable of the coin and the parable of the, of the sheep. Because coins and sheep can't repent, can they? So Jesus brings in that idea of repentance in telling the stories of the parable of the sheep and the coin. Now people, people can repent. So you didn't have to bring that out in this story because it involves people. It, invo- it, it involves uh, a father and his son. Uh, repentance really starts with a, uh, a change of mind, uh, a change in the direction of our thinking. You know, everything we do, we think about it first and then we do it. Repentance starts with the change in your mind. And ultimately what repentance is, it is turning toward God the way Scripture portrays it, turning away from the direction you're heading which is away from God, and turning toward God. That's, that's what repentance in this story will look like. And, and look at what we see here. In verse 17, it says, When he came to his senses, uh, when he came to himself, he's thinking. He is really, he's come to the bottom of his barrel. He has run out of options, and he starts thinking about what he's done. And look at verse 18. I think this is key when he says, Father... I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. So he's realizing not only has he wronged his father, he has wronged God in heaven by his actions. And all this is going on in his mind, you know. Uh, He's thinking about these things. Look at verse 19 and and look at the humility he shows in verse 19. He's thinking, he's going to tell his father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Uh, the hired men, that was the, uh, these weren't servants of the house who really had a decent life. These were the lowest of the low. These were uh, day laborers. They were just called when they needed some extra help. So it was, you know, it, it was the lowest position you could be on the farm. And that's what he's saying. I'm willing to come back and, and make me as one of your day laborers. You know, I'm not worthy to be your son. All this goes through his mind, which is great, but look, he actually follows through with what he's planning on doing. Verse 20 says, he got up and he did something about it. Came to his father. Then we, in that famous response of the father, look at this response. While he was still a long ways off. Now, he went to a faraway country. In in those days, he was either on a donkey or he walked. So he was gone. We don't know how long, but a long time. What does that say about the father? While he was still a long way off, the father saw him. The father was looking for him. The father was standing on the porch, looking in the distance, and he saw him, and he felt compassion for him, and he ran, embraced him, and kissed him. What a, what a great picture that is of God. And, and think about... Think about the, uh, the tax collectors and the sinners because all these three parables, these things that are lost, he's really talking about them. They're the ones who had been lost. So this story he's telling of the younger son is really their story. They had been lost. And that first couple of verses when it talked about Jesus receiving them, the father had welcomed him back with open arms. 
restored him to that position of a son. You know, wasn't going to have anything to do with this keeping his as a slave. Restored him all the benefits of a son. I, just, I love that picture of God. And we've got to keep in mind the Pharisees and the scribes. Because all the while they're hearing this, this pattern of lost, found, rejoicing, repentance. They see the repentance in that younger, in that younger son. So now we come to, um, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the stories. Anybody, have you ever heard of Paul Harvey? Anybody under about 30 probably doesn't have a clue who I'm talking about. <laughs> Paul Harvey, every time he'd do a news, pro- news program, would say, now for the rest of the story. And that's what we're going to talk about. And I do think it's key because uh, I think this is where Jesus is headed from the very beginning. Okay? He's heading these, these four stories he's telling toward this climax. Okay? Talking to the Pharisees and to the, and to the scribes. Uh, look for... See if you see any lost, found, rejoicing, repentance in the life of the older brother. Let me read this story from 25 on. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Uh, Do you see lost? I think he's kind of portrayed as being lost. He's outside where all the party is going on. You see his attitude. We certainly don't see him being found. We don't see him coming in to the party where the Father is. We certainly don't see any repentance at all. I don't know if you've uh, read a book that was out a couple of years ago by a guy named Timothy uh, Keller. It's called The Prodigal God. He makes a great statement in that book. He says, we've always called this parable the parable of the prodigal son. He said, I think it needs to be called the parable of the loving father and two lost sons. I mean, that's a great point because I think sometimes we forget the, the uh, response from both sons. Both of these sons are lost. They're just lost in a, in a different way. You know, we see that younger son, he was rebellious. And he was lost in his sin, seeking happiness his own way. But the older brother is a little harder to see that in. Uh, so we're going to talk about the older brother. I really do think that's the focus of Jesus' uh, storytelling here. Okay? And I think we need to pay attention to what he is saying. Uh, I was reading a, a sermon, a, a John Piper sermon the other day over this passage, and he made a great statement that I wanted to put on the screen that I think applies to all of us. Look at this. And this is talk- to his congregation, but it applies to us as well. Talking about the passage of the older brother, he says, as we impact this passage, most of us need to listen very carefully this passage is for long-time churchgoers. 
passage for people who don't struggle as much with running from God as they struggle with condemning those who do. This is a passage for people who tend to think of other people who need this passage. Boy, isn't that kind of hard to read, but I love the fact that, I mean, it really is. It's for churchgoers. Look, look at the picture that is portrayed of the older brother. He, was all, he stayed with his father. He didn't rebel. He didn't, at least not overtly, he didn't run from God. He didn't run from the father to pursue happiness on his own. So I think as we think about both sons, there's a couple of things we need to think. Like I said, we tend to think of the younger son as the one who was lost. His is certainly more obvious. Uh, he wanted nothing to do with his father. Totally self-centered. Totally selfish. He wanted to seek happiness his own way. Then he'd rather do that than pursue a relationship with the father and remain under his authority. There's a lot of an authority issue here going on. You see that? What about the older brother? Was he interested in a relationship with the father? No. He's interested in, in the father's stuff. <laughs> He's in it for what he can get out of it. There was nothing in here about a relationship. You know, his comment is even, I've been serving you all these years. You know, what a, what a horrible attitude to have in a father and son relationship. Uh, I think that's something we certainly don't want to miss. Um, I think the older brother represents, uh, in his mindset, was thinking, I'm doing all these things, I'm obeying his commands so that I will obligate my father to give me what I really want. It's almost like that attitude of, um, I've done everything I, on, on my part, but, uh, Father, you've not kept your end of the deal. <laughs> he And I think him saying... You know, his words there when he says, I've never obeyed one command of yours. Now, he saw himself as, as righteous, didn't he? We would call that self-righteousness. Now, I think that's what Jesus is, is getting at from the very beginning of his first parable in verse 4 all the way through the end of the chapter. Yes, he's portraying the Father, portraying God as, as Christ who has come as welcoming sinners and tax collectors and loving and, and embracing them. But all the while, he's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes and he's pointing out their self-righteousness. So he's relating the older brother to the Pharisees and the scribes. I think it's funny how he even says, uh, I think it's in verse, it's in, at the end of verse 29, yet you have never given me a young goat you know, that's the, on the farm, that would have been like the smallest thing that, that he could have received. So he is looking for what he can get out of this. There's nothing relational. And, and again, it's an authority issue there with the father. It reminds me a lot uh, of, of Kevin's message last week. Uh, if you weren't here and didn't get a chance to, to hear that, you ought to go online and check it out. It, it really is good, and, it, and it, I think it fits very well with, with what Luke is saying here. Uh, last week in Kevin's message, if, if I get this right, I hope so. <laughs> um, he's t uh, Matthew is talking about recognizing and responding to the authority of Christ. And the religious leaders that he was talking about there and talking to there, you know, honestly, the religious leaders should have been the first ones to realize who Jesus was and to respond to his authority. Is that, is that right? 
But they're the ones who missed him totally. And it's a very similar passage, or a very similar theme to what we're talking about this morning. And I, and I love, uh, it's in Matthew 21, 31. Uh, it says, Jesus says to these religious leaders, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. So he's talking about this same group of people we're talking about this morning, you know, the sinners and the tax collectors. And they had responded to Christ. They, were, they had come to listen to him. It's exactly what Matthew is saying in, 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 in chapter 21 there. So it's just interesting how similar those two messages are, and there's certainly an authority issue in both of these. So I think in Jesus' message, what he is saying in this entire chapter, and, and keep in mind, if you've got a red-letter Bible, it's all red letters from verse 4 to the end of the chapter. It, Jesus just has this long discourse. And I think what he is saying is there's different ways to be lost. We tend to think of that younger son who was obviously lost, and it showed. Uh, and I think, we, I think he gets so much attention because we can relate to him because uh, we know that story. I, I know the testimonies of a lot of people in this room, and there's lots of younger sons, and I'm, man, I'm the worst, you know. I mean, for 10 years from the time I went to college until uh, God got my attention at 28 years old, I was that younger son. And I had run from him, and I had squandered, you know, a lot more than my possessions I had squandered, honestly. So we can relate to that story of the younger son, I think. And it's a fabulous message of God's mercy and God's, and God's grace. But how about the older brother? Do we notice his lostness? It's almost like, and I say this, I kind of carefully say this, it's almost like when, if we read that the first time we read it, we can almost sympathize with him a little bit because he's been so good. And here this father hasn't given him anything. But what Jesus is revealing is that he was self-righteous. I, I think when he says, especially in 29 where he says, I've never neglected a command of yours. You know, was that true? No. <laughs> he just had failed to admit that. He had overlooked his disobedience. And, and, I, and I also think you see an attitude of him. You know those words he uses there in verse 29. How um, disrespectful is his attitude when he says, Look, look at those words, look, for so many years I have been serving you. And you and have never disobeyed a command of yours, yet you have never given me even a young goat. I mean, there's a really condescending, um, disrespectful attitude there. Um, certainly not under the authority of the Father in a respectful way. And then you look at his response in verse 28. And I, we didn't mention that, but he says he became angry. Why do you think the older brother became angry? Uh, I think... But, in his mind, the younger son didn't deserve what he got. He didn't deserve this treatment. He deserved to be left out, penalized. He didn't deserve anything good. So you think about how the Pharisees and the scribes, are, how do they think about themselves? They, they strictly keep the law. They keep themselves away from all these sinners that might cause them to be unclean. So they consider themselves to be clean, consider themselves to be righteous, when in actuality they are self-righteous. 
But I think something we can't miss, and I think this is kind of the way, and it's funny, these parables don't necessarily come to a conclusive ending. The story just kind of ends, okay? Uh, I don't see Jesus as condemning, and I think we do that a lot of times. I think we, we look at the Pharisees and scribes and all the religious leaders and we see Jesus condemning them, you know? We don't, I don't, he's not condemning them here. Uh, even though he's comparing them to the older brother. And even though the older brother is outside in location to the party going on, to the rejoicing going on, there's this invitation. You see, do you see that invitation here to the self-righteous older brother? In his mind, in the, in the, in the uh, Pharisees and scribes' mind, there's this lost, found, repentance, rejoicing pattern going on. So what does the older brother have to do to be received? It's repentance. Father would receive him with open arms. And I think it's great we see the father going out to him. Uh, my, my translation says uh, begging him, pleading with him. So there's that invitation that we can't miss here for the self-righteous. And that is critical because I promise you, there's, whew, I, God's been beating me up on the whole self-righteousness thing for weeks now. And, and the good news for all of us this morning is that he goes out to us. He offers us that invitation. He pleads with us. He wants us to be part of the celebration because he's going to celebrate. Scripture says when one sinner repents, there's great rejoicing in heaven. So we can't miss the fact that the Father is, is, uh, is entreating him, begging him. So I want to spend the last few minutes really thinking about self-righteousness, you know, because I think we do associate with the younger, younger brother a lot, and that story gets preached. But I want to talk, we don't talk about self-righteousness a lot because uh, I think it's a painful thing to admit. <laughs> um, so if we're honest with ourselves and... Hopefully we will, but I don't think we are most times. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that it is a real danger. And we can actually go from being the younger son to being the older brother. We can, we can go from being lost and rebellious and running from God and then being found. And then a few years later, being in church every Sunday and even reading Scripture, we step into the role of the older brother and all of a sudden... We're self-righteous. And I think the message in this passage is that both of these brothers are lost. That self-righteous brother is lost in his self-righteousness. And I think Jesus points that out to us. So I thought of some things. These are just some of my thoughts, okay? How can we identify self-righteousness in ourselves? And first of all, I'd have to, I'd have to point out that, that Scripture would say there's really no such thing as self-righteousness. Because we don't have any righteousness in ourselves. Remember Isaiah 64? It says all of your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. You know, you think of the best thing you've ever done. You think God must be really be proud of me now, you know. He says all of your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. We have no righteousness in ourselves apart from Christ's righteousness that we receive when we trust Him in faith. So, really there's no such thing. It's kind of a ridiculous idea. But we all are guilty of it from time to time. Uh, so here's, I thought of four things, four ways that we can identify self-righteousness in ourselves. The first one is, do we think of others as not quite as good as ourselves? Uh, critical, are we overly critical of people? You know, see things they do, and boy, we just judge, really judge that. Boy, I'd never do that, you know. 
uh, even, even the people who are really down and out uh, materially and physically, sometimes we just, it's almost like a Pharisee's, uh, uh, Pharisee scribe's attitude. I don't want to be around them. I'm telling you, that's a great sign of a self-righteous attitude. <laughs> uh, the second one I thought of is when we read Scripture or hear a sermon, do we think of somebody else who needs it? <laughs> that's pretty easy to do, isn't it? Listen to a message and go, boy, I wish Bob was here. Man, he really needs to hear this. So we need to read Scripture and listen to messages and allow the Spirit to bring conviction on ourselves and apply those things to ourselves. Uh, The third one, I think, is how regularly do we confess and repent of our sins to God or or confess to others? Because I think the problem is it's not a very pleasant thing I don't know about you, but it, it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to admit that we mess up. And we mess up so often. But if, if, we, if, we, if we stop confessing and repenting, eventually we start forgetting that we're sinners. Every one of us, we are sinners. So I think that ought to be something that we do uh, on a regular basis. We'll talk about that in, ju- in just a minute. Uh, and I think this is a, an obvious one from the story of the, of, the, of the older brother. This is the fourth point, is when things don't go our way, do we ever think God isn't holding up his end of the deal? And although we'd never say that in our own words, you know, how many times do we think this? You know, man, I've been at church every Sunday for the last year, and I have read, your, I've read Scripture, and I've prayed. How can you let me get cancer? You know, or how can you let... My business failure. You know, I think we have those tendencies sometimes to think that. That's exactly what the older brother did. But I'm telling you, that is self-righteousness. And it's rooted in pride, which Scripture says God just hates because we have no reason to be proud. So how do we prevent this? How do we prevent a self-righteous attitude? This is kind of where my mind went because I think it's easy to get there because... um, Think about it. Once you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you really take your faith serious and you're attending church and you're looking at God's Word. There's all those places in Scripture that tell us to, to put sin away and to put off the old self and put on the new self and uh, you know, avoid sin. Say no to sin. Say yes to God. You know, the, ver- the verses that say make every effort. You know, do everything you can do. Paul is, r- is really strong about don't sin. So, hopefully we do that and maybe we don't sin quite as much which is a good thing but then we start feeling pretty good about the fact that we don't sin as much as we used to and we see somebody else and go man i don't sin as much as he does you know and there you've got a pharisee's attitude uh i think that's where self-righteousness is you know the next thing you know if you if you go down that road far enough we don't you don't really even need a savior because you've not done anything wrong you know it's everybody else who's living in their sin and you're looking at God's Word every day, and you are pretty self-righteous. That, I, I think it's a, a real common problem that we have as believers. And we need to remember that Jesus calls this older brother lost. And the good news is, whether you're the older brother or the younger son, it's the same response. It is repentance. Both are repentance. That's why Jesus emphasized repentance. So I've got four other thoughts here about how to avoid falling into this deadly trap. And I do think it's a deadly trap. Here's four ideas of mine, okay? I think, first of all, like I just said, be honest about our sin. 
before God as we pray every day. Admit, man, we sin every day. And dwell on, meditate on our need for Christ's blood every day because we sin every day. I would recommend spending time uh, reading Romans 6 and 7 because, I mean, it, Paul is all over this idea because Romans 6 is probably one of the strongest chapters in the whole Bible about not sinning. It's like, how can you think about that? You, be, you're dead to sin, you know? Then he turns around in chapter 7 and says, I'm a slave to sin. I don't do what I want to do. In fact, what I do is not what I want to do. He's just admitting to himself he's a sinner. And to me it shows, because I'm sure Paul doesn't sin like I sin, and it shows me that his sin ate him up a lot more. It bothered him a lot more than my sin does. You know, even in in 1 Timothy, Paul says he considers him the the chief of sinners. Chief, I think is what it says. Uh, The greatest of sinners. Yeah. Well, he's not. We We all ought to go, he's not. I am. That ought to be our attitude, really. Uh, so, the second point, I think, is we need to make confession and repentance a regular practice. And every day, we need to spend time before God and allow His Spirit to convict us and, and confess and repent. Because we have this picture of this loving Father who's compassionate, who welcomes us with open arms. That need to be, needs to be a daily thing that we do. Uh, the third one is to read and meditate on scriptures that emphasize the only righteousness we have is Christ's righteousness. I think my favorite scripture in the whole Bible is 2 Corinthians uh, 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know, we receive Christ's righteousness because we need Christ's righteousness because we don't have any, none. And the, and the last point uh, is we need to remember as, that as believers, we're not his servants. Yes, we do serve God, but I think that mentality of the older brother, he's just... He served God and he was bitter about it. We are sons. We're not just servants. We are sons. I think that's why Jesus tells the story of of, of these two sons. He redeemed us so that we can enjoy a relationship with the Father daily and live under his authority. That's his goal. That's That's his goal for every one of us. So we're going to move into a a response time here in, in just a minute. But I want to just kind of summarize briefly because it doesn't matter. And I think my, my thought would be in our prayer time, in our response time, just to pray and ask God to show us wh- where am I in this story? <laughs> am I the younger son who has rebelled and run away from God and squandered everything? Or am I the, am I the older brother, the self-righteous older brother um, but we've got to remember the compassion of the Father because that's the consistent thing in all three of these parables. In the last two stories, the parable of the sons, that's a consistent part. Is you have the father with the younger son. He is looking for him and he runs to meet him. And the older brother, he goes out and he begs with him and he pleads with him to return. So regardless of where we find ourselves today, that is the answer. That's the response that God is looking for is repentance and to return to him. One one point I need to make before we before we have our response time uh, that deals with repentance. Okay, I made, made the comment earlier that that parables don't tell the whole story; they just kind of give a picture of it. And truth be known, we really can't 
just turn back to God is, is the way that story is portrayed because our sin has separated us from Him, right? So the idea of just turning back to Him and Him receiving us in open arms, well, what has to happen? We have to realize who paid that debt. The Scripture says we're all sinners, and Scripture says that the penalty of, de- of sin is death. Christ paid that penalty for us so that we can repent, so we can return to Him. So our response this morning is to turn to Christ and trust Him in faith, regardless of which son you find we find ourselves in this story. The answer is to turn to Christ and trust Him that His sacrifice paid for our sin, but it requires us to trust Him in faith. And that enters, enters us into that relationship as a son that we then can enjoy with God and live under His authority.